0: Father, that's exactly what we pray. God, that we would be able to go through life and gather together as a communion of saints, community of believers, and remind one another and encourage one another that no matter what we face, we've never been alone. God, that when we are in moments of need, moments of difficulty, we need help, we cry out to you because we're reminded of the numerous times, God, where you have come and you have been that help. And so today, Father, we raise a similar Ebenezer. We build this metaphorical altar. We stack it stone by stone. As we look to our left and our right, and we're constantly reminded of the numerous ways, God, that you have demonstrated your love, your kindness, your care, your concern. We encourage one another this morning, Father, by reminding one another, we know exactly where our help comes from. It comes from you and from you alone. And for that, God, we thank you. So be with us now, send your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your holy word, that it would be the help and the guide that we need. We would glorify you with our lives, both now and forevermore, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Good morning, church family. How's everyone doing this beautiful Sunday morning? You doing well? You doing well? Amen. All right, good. I like to hear a little bit more energy out of you every morning. So it's good to see you all. Y'all, it's the last Sunday of July. Can I get an amen or like a a weeping or a wailing or something like that? Because that means that school is starting in just two weeks and I cannot believe it. Uh, It's the last week of July and I hope that your summer has been filled with a lot of great experiences, that you've had a chance to rest, to relax, to go on vacation. Uh, and that you're ready for a new school year. Uh, We've got several things that we want to emphasize and and provide as updates for you. We've kind of been talking about that as we've walked through these last few Sundays of July, that we want to take kind of the first part of the sermon time to give some of these updates so that you all know some of the things that we are anticipating uh, as we head into a new school year, because we're moving into it with a lot of excitement and a lot of anticipation We're eager for it to begin and excited for a lot of the things that are on the horizon. Uh, so a couple of updates uh, for you all this morning. Maybe many of you noticed it, but we uh, have some fresh paint being applied to our first floor hallway, which is pretty awesome. It's looking pretty good. Uh, We should be able to see that get finished up this week, and so again, special word of appreciation to our facilities team, John and his leadership, and so many others that are overseeing those projects. We're we're working on getting the floor fixed, and we'll continue to work on that as soon as possible. New signage is on the way uh, once that paint is uh, applied and ready to go, and so Hopefully, a lot of those things are in place as we start the new school year, and so we're excited about that, and again, a word of appreciation for all those who are working to make that possible. But a lot of the updates that we've been covering here at the beginning of these messages have really kind of focused in on uh, some timeline stuff. You heard Caroline walk through some key dates, and I just want to reiterate those uh, this morning. Next week, August 7th, uh, if you are a facilitator for a D group, we would love for you to come to the facilitator training that we're gonna have after church. Uh, It's very, very important for you to, to be there, it's not a hybrid meeting. It's not a Zoom option. We would love for you to be present and here, because uh, we really want to uh, re-emphasize just the kind of the focus and the DNA of discipleship groups and what we hope those can accomplish. And so, we would love for you to be a part of that. But you heard Caroline correctly that we want to extend that invitation uh, to, to others, right? If you Think you might want to be a D group facilitator in the future or you're just curious a little bit more about the the ins and outs of it and the philosophy behind it the goals objectives of it we would love for you to join us next sunday as well so mark that down next sunday after church as being an option for any of you that are interested in knowing more about how we're trying to lead and implement these discipleship groups then the 14th with promotion sunday we've got that special event for parents that morning as they take their kids to their first kind of new classes as they start a new school year and they get to promote up to a new grade level. Um, they're gonna have a great weekend as both students as and children. And so that Sunday morning at 9.30 when parents get a chance to drop off their kids, we're gonna have a breakfast uh, catered in. We're gonna gather in Harris Hall. You're gonna get a chance as parents to hear more about the philosophy of children's ministry, of student ministry. Here's some uh, updates on some things we have planned for the fall and the rest of the year that we're really excited about, and a chance just for parents to connect with one another. So if you have a child from cradle to senior in high school, you can come and join us for breakfast at 9.30 on the 14th. Then after church on the 14th, we have the D group launch. Uh, Again, we're gonna feed you again. We're feeding you a lot, I hope you realize that. So can I get another amen? amen? All right, who doesn't love food? So we're gonna feed you again. Uh, after church on the 14th. That's for everyone. It's a time to hang out and to fellowship, uh, but it's really where we want to really encourage an opportunity for you to sign up for discipleship groups. That's kind of the beginning of the year for discipleship groups. So that's that's our main ask, right, is that you come to that and and express your interest and sign up for discipleship groups. It's not speed dating. It's not like you're going around and meeting different groups and deciding where you wanna join. It's literally, we're gonna have some tables, where you provide a little bit of information about your availability during the week, which, which type of discipleship group might interest you, things like that. So come, get some food, sign up as we get those discipleship groups launched here by the end of August. Um, now after that, the 21st at 9.30, uh, we're going to gather together to continue to emphasize blessing uh, the backpacks in these schools And so we're going to do some things for teachers that morning. That'll be a church-wide gathering that we can uh, do that morning at 9.30 in Harris Hall as well. Uh, So then we'll get through all of those things that on the 28th, uh, we'll start our UBC Enriched Classes. And so we're really excited about those classes that are going to start at 9.30. And for the last two Sundays that I've been here preaching, Warren uh, preached a message in between those two, we took some time to talk a little bit more about... Uh, UBC Enriched, and kind of what we're trying to implement and the philosophy behind these Sunday morning classes. We we mentioned a little bit about the context that has driven a lot of the decision-making, talking about that after the last two years of the pandemic and all the constant change and uncertainty and confusion, uh, we're really going into this next year to try to do this indefinitely. Uh, we want to create rhythm. We want to create tradition. We want to create clarity. Now there's going to be a learning curve, right? It's still going to feel like change because it is new, but what we're trying to communicate to you is that we're not doing this as a temporary interim solution. We're doing this indefinitely so that it can really build upon those rhythms and traditions that have been so hard to come by over the last several years. And so we're incredibly excited about doing that. We want to lean upon our strengths Uh, As a church family, as we try to address some of the weaknesses that we've identified in recent years, and so UBC Enrich is is a way to answer a lot of those different things. We also talked over the last couple of weeks about the structure of of what those classes are going to look like, that we're going to have these eight-week-long sessions throughout the year. Uh, We're going to have guest speakers every once in a while. We're going to have a breakfast together as a church every eight weeks, and uh, those teachers are going to gather together within those sessions, and we're going to offer three classes, that are really kind of driven by the vision of the church, right? Three broad categories of discipleship, healing, and justice, which I'm going to elaborate on a little bit more here in just a second. Um, and so that's going to be kind of the structure of those classes. Last week, I talked to you a little bit more about why we're doing it this way and why it's important and try to answer that inevitable question that many of you ask, which is, why do I need to come to this, right? Like, especially if I'm already in a D group. Right? And if I'm not in a D group, but I'm coming to UBC Enriched, then why do I need to be in a D group? Like, I, can't I just pick one or the other? And so we talked about the way that all these things work together. And I, I gave you that image of a house and going over to visit a house, right? That when you walk up and you, you're, out, you're out in the front yard, you get a first impression of the house. But then you walk in and you go into those common areas. And that's where you sit around dinner tables and in living rooms and you build relationships, But homes also have that third space that's more personal that only a few people go to, right? The the bedroom areas and things like that, you're not always invited into all those different areas of the home because there's different sorts of relationships. And so just like you see different spaces in a home for different degrees of relationships, we see that similarly in church, right? That The 1030 service that we're all a part of, that's like standing out on the front lawn. That's a chance to see kind of what a church is about from the exterior. But we want you to to build relationships with one another. We need those common areas where you can come and get to know one another. That's UBC enriched. But at the same time, you wanna do more than just connect. You wanna go deep. You, you need to be able to invite people in to the more personal things in your life. That's discipleship groups, right? So all three spaces are important to create that connectivity and that depth. And so that's why we're doing all of these things. And so, so I tried to answer the first part of the why last week, but now I wanna expound upon it even a little bit further in terms of why, why all this happens, right? And, and to do that, part of what I wanna make sure that we don't lose sight of is that whenever we're talking about Sunday morning, Sunday morning worship or UBC enriched and, and some of those things, a lot of times what we are talking about is what takes place when we're here on this campus. And, and that's incredibly important, right? What takes place on this campus when we all gather. But I've said to you all on numerous occasions since I've been here that the philosophy and the mindset that I want us to have as a church is that we are not a come and see church. We are a go and make church, right? Like that's who we are. We, we are called to go and make disciples. And so what that means is, is that the time that we spend here together is incredibly important. But what it is designed to do is it's the pit stop within your week where you are hopefully going to be enriched and encouraged and emboldened and equipped to go and make, right? We are an outwardly focused church. And so I don't want us to ever lose sight of that. And and so really part of the way that we've talked about this in the past, in fact, when I was interviewing to become the pastor here at this church, I was given a demographic study uh, of some of the things that were taking place, the demographics within this community, in this neighborhood, within a two and a half mile radius. And I've, I've talked about this on several occasions before. I want to bring it back to your attention because what was really compelling to me as I looked at that demographic study was that those estimates would tell you that within two and a half miles of this church, they would have believed that there are around 10,000 people who don't believe in God. Can I say that again? Within two and a half miles, of this church, estimates would suggest there are 10,000 people who don't believe in God. Now you throw in people who are religious, but maybe Hindu, maybe Muslim, maybe Jewish, right? That number only goes up. And so what I've said over and over again is, what's our plan for the 10,000? Right, and it's somewhat metaphorical because I'm not saying we just only focus within this two and a half mile radius. We focus wherever the Lord sends each and every one of you. But that's representative. Lostness is all around us. So what's our plan for it? Because I assure you, the 10,000 people that don't believe in God are not sitting at home wondering about the differences between small groups and Sunday school. They aren't sitting at home questioning what kind of music we have. And so if that's where all of our energy goes, and that's where all of our focus is, is really driven by, like, we're missing the point. So what we do here is designed to help us know how to go and make, right? And so when we talk about UBC rich, we're talking about one ingredient in and in a significant recipe of a lot of different things we're doing in this church that will hopefully embolden and equip all of us to go and make, right? To be disciples where i learn more about my identity in Jesus, but then I am further equipped to go and make disciples, Right, so let me explain to you a little bit how we see that working and how that's driving so much of what we're trying to build with UBC Enriched. Again, this is just one component of how we're trying to live that out. When you think about the tagline that we've offered up for UBC Enriched, we've said it's meeting together to grow in unity through scripture, community, and vision. Right? Th- those are kind of the, the essence. Of, of what we're trying to do at that 9.30 hour. And so I wanna, I wanna work backwards in those descriptions uh, to kind of give you some context to it because ending with scripture will help serve as a segue to our text today uh, when we get to Romans chapter six here in just a few moments. Uh, but really what I want to, to talk about there is that the reason we gather together in that additional time at that 9.30 hour in that second space, that more common area space where relationships begin is so that we can build around the vision of this church. Because the vision of the church is typically what's going to compel us to engage the world around us. Right? It's common uh, for people to wanna gather together in their churches and in community based on life stage. Right? And that's normal and natural, and we support that. In fact, I would say that's very beneficial. Right? To find people who are gonna be of a similar age, going through similar things that you're going through, uh, facing similar situations, like that's important. What I would tell you is that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times that happens somewhat organically, especially in discipleship groups, right? That's kind of where we tend to wanna to to find that personal connection. And so we see a lot of our discipleship groups uh, that that build itself around life stage. They don't have to, but a lot of them do. So we want that space for you, right? But can I tell you, what, what draws us together as a church can't be our age. Like, that shouldn't be what brings you here. Like, we're not joining and uniting together because I find somebody that's also 40 and has three kids. Like, we actually believe that this church, this local church, church has been entrusted with things to actually make a difference in the world around us, right? And so that's where our vision comes into play. How are we, as a body of believers, going to do that? How are we going to pursue that? Well, when we talk about the vision of this church, we talk about it in terms of discipleship, healing, and justice. That's what we want to rally around when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Let's talk about discipleship, healing, and justice because the more we talk about that and that vision, the more it's going to enrich us and equip us to go and engage and make disciples in the world around us, right? Having the opportunity to have numerous conversations with people of different generations that's intergenerational, because we believe both generations, of all generations, will benefit in that exchange to have discussions about what does it mean to make disciples? How do I practice that? Sharing stories on that. Learning from one another. All different sorts of subjects and categories that can fall under that category of discipleship. Right, we can talk about healing. Right? Because the reality is, is that when you go out into a broken world, guess what you find? Broken people. Guess what we are? Broken people. And if we're going to effectively engage the world around us, we need to do so out of the overflow of our hearts, not running on empty. And so we recognize that all of us need healing. And the more we understand what it means to be healed by this gospel, the more we're going to be able to be ambassadors of that healing to people that also need it. That was the essence of Jesus's ministry. This is how he validated his authority. He healed people. He says it himself. I didn't come here for the healthy, I came for the sick. And so should his church, right? Whether that's physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, like that's what we're about. So that you can find that healing and we can be ambassadors for that healing we engage the world around us. We're gonna be people who love justice, right? What we mean by that is we're gonna be a light that shines in the darkness. We are not gonna be a church that withdraws and insulates itself and creates some Christian bubble. Right, like we're gonna go and make a difference in the world around us. For us, that means we've narrowed in on the cause of uh, foster care and adoption, right? But it's not exclusive to that. We've got people in this church that are regularly encouraging the prisoner, people that are feeding the hungry. Like it's not gonna just be that, but we are gonna have an area of focus so that we can say we are gonna be advocates for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for the brokenhearted. That's how we want to rally around and gather together right? The vision of the church. So that's part of why we said when we meet together on Sunday mornings, let's do so intergenerationally around the things that God is compelling us to do as a body of believers. Let's meet together in vision. Let's grow in our understanding of this vision and how to pursue it. That's one of the reasons we're doing it the way that we're doing it. The second part of that tagline is community, right? That that part of what we said last week was the way that relationships work and the different sorts of spaces that we need. And that's incredibly important because discipleship is not a project, right? We're not inviting you to some endeavor and some opportunity that is project-oriented. It's people-oriented. We serve a relational God who has invited us into relationship and sends us out to forge relationships with others. Right so we have to understand what it means to make community to foster community to be a part of a community right cuz that's what discipleship really compels us to do discipleship more often than not is going to occur around dinner tables and over coffee and over lunch you can invite them to church but you also need to be able to understand what does it mean to build those relationships because people are lonely right like there's an epidemic of loneliness out there and if if we just treat people as projects, like man, I've just got a message that I hope you, you hear and a prayer that you pray and then I'm done, we are doing a disservice to the gospel. So the more that we understand community, the more that we as a church are a loving community, the better able we are going to be to love the community. It's one of our key convictions. So that's why we have breakfast every eight weeks. That's not just because, well, I don't know, let's just fill something on the calendar. Like create space for us to actually build relationships with one another and on-ramps for other people to integrate into those relationships to actually build community. And the last one, which, like I said, will serve as a natural segue to Romans chapter 6. You can go ahead and grab your Bible and start turning to Romans 6 as we prepare to, to look at the last few verses of that section of Scripture. But before we get to that, and before I set that up, the other reason we're, we're doing what we're doing at UBC Enrich is because we are fiercely committed to the teaching of Scripture, like fiercely committed to it. Because we are a biblically guided church. And by that, what I mean is not that we're gonna look at the Bible as a place where we can find suggestions or like a a reference point or a historical book to consider from time. Like we see it as authoritative. And so we're gonna create numerous opportunities for all of us to come and study God's word. And, and I'm not gonna apologize for it. Like, that is going to be our focus in all of these arenas, whether it's Sunday morning in the large worship service, UBC Enrich, or discipleship groups, that's what we're focused on, is the word of God, right? And, and part of the other reason that we do it the way that we're gonna do it at 9.30 is because we also see in the scripture that God equips the body of believers with many gifts. And I am not the only teacher in this room, there are incredible people who have been gifted by the Spirit of God to teach and to edify and build up the body of Christ. And we want you to hear from them. We want you to grow in that gift. And so we're going to create space for those things, right? So all of that speaks to some of the reasons as to why we have this time at UBC Enrich and why we're telling you this is going to add value and significance in your life. This is gonna help us as a church pursue this vision, grow in community, understand God's word. But, but really, what I don't want us to not lose sight of when we think about the value of scripture, in, in this part that I can say kind of serves us as a transition, is not isolated just to UBC Enriched. Right? So I'm, what I'm trying to say is have no concerns. Like, we're studying the Bible when people come together at UBC Enriched, right? It's, it's not just hanging out. Like, we are going to study the scripture, And when we gather together as a church, as a large church at 1030, we're going to study the scripture. When you gather as a discipleship group, you're going to study the scripture. And that is going to be hugely instrumental in our ability to not just be a come and see church, but a go and make church. Let me explain to you why. Uh, At least three things this morning. There is a long list, but let me highlight at least three. The first is one of the reasons we're going to be fiercely committed to the scripture is because it constantly reminds us who Jesus is. You can't follow what you don't know, right? And so many people try. And they'll they'll claim the title or the label of Christian and have no idea who he is and what he taught. And that doesn't work, right? So, So for us, every time we come to the word of God, it gives us a chance to be reminded and encouraged and to see who Jesus is so that we can know what does it mean to be his follower, to be a disciple, to remember the things that he taught, the things that he said, the things that he did, and what he commissioned us to do. That's why we're gonna always be in the word of God. It reminds us who Jesus is. Another reason why it's so important for us to be biblically guided and to create spaces like this to study God's word together is because we believe scripture to be true, right? And that's incredibly important in today's context. We live in a world and in a culture in a context where truth is elusive. It's subjective. Right? It's whatever you want it to be. And if we're going to ever effectively engage that world, we have to know what does it mean to be an ambassador for truth. And the only way we can really do that is to actually study God's word and to understand what it teaches and what it says. There's this passage of scripture that comes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that I think says this incredibly well, and this again kind of correlates and sets the tone for what we'll look at today in Romans 6. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this, it says, this is Paul writing to Timothy, he says, preach the message, be ready whether it is convenient or not. I love that part. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction, for there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. And they will turn away from hearing the truth. But on the other hand, they will turn aside to myths. You, however, be self-controlled in all things, endure hardship, do an evangelist's work, fulfill your ministry. I love Paul's charge to Timothy here. Because it so correlates to who we are as a church and where we are engaging in the world around us, the context within which we live. We live in a time where people don't want to put up with sound teaching. We live in a time where they will do everything they can to gather teachers for themselves because they have this insatiable curiosity to hear new things. Right? like That is the era within which we live. And so what Paul has said to Timothy is, you know what, and similarly, your responsibility is to preach a message. You and I, we have a message to preach. We'll never understand it if we don't know the word of God. And I love that he says, be ready to preach it, whether it's convenient or not. That's convicting, right? Because everything about American Christianity for the last however many decades has really been driven by convenience. How can we make this more convenient for you to follow? And Paul's like, no, you need to be ready to say this whether it's comfortable for you or not. And what happens when you preach it? Right, again, we live in an era when truth is subjective and and we start championing love, we redefine love to essentially mean blind acceptance of all things, tolerance of all things, which really equates to condoning of sinful behavior. And what Paul reminds us of is that actually when you go and you champion truth, it's gonna lead to rebuke, it's gonna lead to reproof, it's gonna lead to exhortation. And so yeah, we're gonna have to have hard conversations to actually declare and stand for truth. But that's what we've been commissioned to do. Now, we don't do it in judgment. We don't do it in hatred. We don't do it in anger. We do it in love. And as he says here, we do it with patience, gentle instruction. right? But that's what we've been asked to do. That's what truth is accomplishes, right? So it's about being self-controlled and being able to champion this, this message of truth. The more we understand what this word says and how it guides our life and what truth is, the more effective we're going to be in being that light in the world that so desperately needs it, right? So it gives us a picture of Jesus. It tells us truth. And then the last one is that it teaches us and reminds us of the Father's heart. The more and more we read scripture, the more we understand the heart of God. Right That we serve a God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love, who is rich in mercy, compassionate, gracious, He is just, He doesn't let the sins go unpunished. like He, he is an incredible God. And what we see in Second Peter is that our God tells us that he wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants no one to perish. His heart is for the 10,000. Like his heart is for the lost. His heart is for. The sick, the hurting, those that need healing, that is what his heart is driven by. So much so, so much as he loved this world that he sends his only son so that anyone that would believe in him won't perish but have everlasting life. The more we understand the scripture, the more we see and are reminded of the Father's heart and that he shares that with us so that we might have the similar passion, which is why he commissions us. go. And make, baptize, teach to obey. And never forget that I've never left you. Raise those Ebenezers to see that I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Right? This is, this is why we gather. This is why we come week after week and open up the Word of God because of everything that it helps us see in Christ to be reminded of His truth to be reminded of the Father's heart and the way it compels us to be a church that's gonna be disciples who go and make disciples. I love that he has entrusted us with that privilege and that opportunity. So with that being said, let's take a look at Romans 6 and see how this particular passage uh, complements so much of what we were just talking about. When we think about Romans 6, we've been walking through the first 14 verses of this chapter, and I told you last week if you wanted an image to keep in mind when you think about these first 14 verses, it's the image of baptism, right? And that so many of the different verses in this text help explain the symbolism that we see in an act of baptism. So last week in particular, we looked through verses five through 11. that really kind of reaches that culmination in verse 11 where it says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, right? You've looked at Jesus' example, and so now you are joining with him in that. So when we lower somebody into the water, Right? That is the statement of we are dying to sin because we have decided to unite ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ. Right? And then when we bring somebody up out of the water, we're saying I'm being made alive to God because I'm uniting myself in a resurrection like His. Right? That's so much of what we talked about last week, is, is being alive or dead to sin and alive to God. Now that's gonna set the stage for verses 12, 13, and 14, which is what we're about to look at today. Verses 12, 13, and 14, to me, kind of give some, some content and some explanation to what we see in the act of a baptism when somebody says, what's your profession of faith? And the person being baptized typically responds, Jesus is Lord, right? Like that's kind of a common exchange that you see during the moment of a baptism. And, and these three verses, I think, give some great clarity as to what's really being offered and what's being stated at that moment of a baptism. What does that actually look like? And so here's how verse 11 leads us into that description of verse 12, 13, and 14, okay? Uh, essentially, part of what Paul is trying to advocate here is, is a thought, right? Verse 11, when he says in the same way, after pointing to Jesus' example, count yourselves, reckon yourselves, see yourselves, believe yourself to be, right? Like it's, it's something that you think, essentially. It's in a very important thought that he's implanting into your mind understand see yourself as being dead to sin but alive to god now the reason that's so important is because thought leads to action we all know this right like all of our thoughts more or less are are going to be the reason that we act in a certain way now we have some instinctive reactions right some things that we do out of habit instinctively right but at the same time most of the things that we do that influences our behavior and our conduct and our lifestyle is going to be premeditated by the things that we think, right? And so I actually came across an article in Psychology Today that was written back in April of this year, and it talks about this. And in that article, it indicated that the average person has around 6,000 thoughts per day. That's a lot. 6,000 thoughts per day. Clearly, we don't act on all of those, Right, we don't act on all of them. And so what happens, according to this article that I thought was fairly interesting, was that it says, your brain almost simultaneously evaluates these thoughts as they come rushing through your mind, and your brain determines if these thoughts are either valid or invalid, right? And and if it quickly assesses that a thought is invalid, then it's not likely going to lead to action. But if it determines a thought is valid, then it probably will lead towards action. So let me give you an example. I could sit up here and think to myself, man, it'd be really cool to have the superpower to fly. Like that's a legitimate thought that could just run through my head on a given day. But at the same time, my brain's gonna say, that's pretty invalid. You're not gonna be able to fly. Therefore, I'm not gonna have any conduct or behavior that's actually going to try to act on that thought. I'm not gonna walk up to the top of a building and see if I can fly because I've determined that thought is invalid. right? But similarly, I may have another thought. I may be driving home from church and I may be seeing somebody standing on a street corner. And I may think to myself, that person's in need. And and my brain's going to validate that based on everything else and say, yes, that's, that's a logical thought to have. And that might actually influence my behavior. My brain may say, that person's on drugs. And that thought may influence my behavior. One thought might lead to me actually giving money, one thought might lead to me not giving money. But the point is, is that my brain is validating these thoughts within my mind that will then influence my behavior. So you see what we're saying here? Valid thoughts often lead to conduct. And so what Paul is doing is he is making this massive paradigm shift within the human psyche, within the the thought process of every human heart, right? What he's saying is that for the longest time, we have seen that we have had sin as our master. But what you get to now see because of Jesus, right, is that you are actually dead to sin, but alive to God. And that is a valid thought. It isn't fantasy. It isn't crazy. It isn't fiction. And the reason you know it's valid, the reason you know it's true is because you look at Christ who also died to sin and is now alive to God. And it is in him that you put your faith. And so the more you have this thought that you are dead to sin and alive to God and you see it as valid, the more likely it is actually going to be to influence your conduct and your behavior, your actions your lifestyle, and that's what he begins to elaborate there in verse 12. Because this is true, in the same way, see yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, I love these three verses, uh, three short verses, and so we just have three quick points to make here as we uh, transition to the last part of this message. Starting with verse 12. Verse 12 gives us a really important framework to understand how our thoughts of being dead to sin and alive to God begins to influence our actions and our behavior. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you might obey its evil desires. Okay, so there's a lot of things embedded in that one verse. Let me extract a few key terms that give us an important structure and framework for our conversation this morning. Let's start with the word mortal, right? He reminds us that our bodies are mortal. And, and this is a kind of tying back into what we said last week, that when we think about dying to sin, That is a lifelong process, right? It is not instantaneous. And so what he's saying is is that as long as you inhabit the flesh, right, as long as you still dwell in the mortal body and you're awaiting the resurrected body, you are going to be in this battle, right? This is part of your mortality. This is part of understanding your fleshly nature, right? So that's an important piece to this conversation. This is something that all of us are going to have to battle as long as we inhabit the mortal body, while we await the resurrected body that Christ has promised, okay? So he references the mortal body, and part of what he says is, what's really going to control it? What are you going to let reign in your mortal body? The word reign means to control completely. What are you going to give your body to? What is it that's going to have Dominion, authority, what is, what is it actually that is going to control your actions, your behavior? And when he starts talking about that reign and that rule, what's gonna occupy your life, he's pointing back to the issue of sin and evil desires. That's the third element in verse 12, right? And so evil desires there towards the end is a really interesting word that I think is worth defining for us this morning, right? When you think about desire, another way to translate that is longing, uh, is lust, is impulse, is uh, one way that I saw it defined that I thought was really interesting and appropriate was anxious self-seeking. That one hits home for me. Like, in fact, if I were gonna try to uh, really just give a good summary of the evil fleshly desires that are innate to the mortal body that every single one of us battle and struggle with, it is a common denominator of self-seeking behavior. Like, you could pick whatever description of sin you wanted. Greed, gossip, lust, pleasure, slander, like, like pick one. At its core, it's self-seeking, right? It's something that you desire for yourself. It's the self-seeking that's gonna distort your relationship to God and your relationship to others. That's ultimately what we see in the mortal flesh and in the sinful desires of the heart, right, is I'm gonna seek self-gratification, self-actualization, it's all about what I want and desire. And I'm gonna rationalize it and I'm gonna justify it so that I can convince myself that this is true, but that, that's what I'm going to do, right, is to seek the self. Those, those are the evil desires that wage this war within us. Right, and so, so he talks about those three elements and then he ties them all to this question of obedience, right, that you would not obey its evil desires. And and the word obedience finds its root in the idea of to hear or to listen. And that to me is a pretty important piece of this that we're going to dive a little bit further into here in just a moment. But but let's, let's evaluate that for a moment, okay? Essentially what he's trying to say is that your human body is going to have certain desires, certain impulses that will reign within you, and you're not supposed to listen to them. Right, it's really a question of self-control. That's really what verses 12, 13, and 14 are speaking to. Right, and so I want us to evaluate this for a moment, and I want you just to think for a little bit, what, what are the desires of your heart? And before you even try to assess if they're good or bad, just think, clean slate. Like what are the things you desire? Right, and then evaluate how those desires have influenced your behavior, your actions, like what you do. Like, you could desire to be a good spouse, and that's going to influence your behavior, like things that you're going to do for your spouse, uh, gestures that you're going to make, words that you're going to say, right? You may desire to be really successful, right? And so that's going to influence how you work, what your work ethic looks like, what kind of job you have, right? Like, what are the desires that you have in your life? Evaluate those for a moment. Evaluate how you're your whole lifestyle, your behavior has been influenced by certain thoughts that are now uh, influencing your behavior and your actions. But part of what we see in verse 12 is to recognize that we can have a a good use of our lives and we can have a poor use of our lives. That in fact, some of those instinctive desires we're not supposed to listen to, right? That's not the direction we should go. And so if we're going to not only assess what desires we have, but then somehow be able to determine, are these good, are these noble, are they wrong, are they leading me astray? The only way we can really discern and decipher whether or not they're good or they're not is by understanding what voice we listen to, what authority we've placed in our lives to help us determine if a thought is good and right or a thought is bad and wrong and the behavior that follows so the next question is not just, hey, what desires do you have, but what voices are shaping those desires? Who are you really listening to? And so let's, let's just kind of be honest with each other for a moment. All right, I was doing some research on this, and uh, I think I found this in Forbes. could have been somewhere else, so don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Forbes. and you to go double-check it. Uh, but according to the, one of the more recent studies, the average American will spend three and a half hours per day on social media. Three and a half hours per day on social media. And I know I'm, I'm not like innocent of that either. And, and when you get tired of scrolling through your news feeds, um, you'll take a break so that you can listen to whatever voice is on your TV four hours per day, on average. Okay, so think about that, y'all, for a little bit. Let's, let's think that your average day of wake time is about 15 hours. Let's say you wake up at 7, you go to bed at 10, thereabouts. That means half of your day, you are listening to voices on screens and devices. Compare that seven and a half hours per day to how much time you spend in God's Word. Compare that time. Man, I'll give three and a half hours to look at Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and all this garbage and how much time will I actually be in the word of God? What voice do you think is actually shaping your behavior and your thoughts? Man, I've had this conversation on so many occasions because I'm telling you right now, I've seen more and more people come to me expressing legitimate concerns with doubts and confusion and understanding the complexity of this world and all that they're seeing. And in all those conversations, one of the things that we've eventually talked about is I said, let's not forget that we live in an unprecedented moment in human history. We have access to more information than anyone ever has before with greater accessibility, and it is absolutely bombarding our minds, and it for sure is impacting our thoughts and our behavior. So like, who are you listening to? I know we can come into church and say, well, I'm listening to God. But are we really? Are we really? What what does our life really say? And if we're given authority to culture and to the world to determine what our our thoughts should be and what our behavior should be, I'm telling you, it's going to lead us astray. Because what the world is going to continually argue for and what we're going to continually buy into is any voice that allows me to be self-seeking because that's what the mortal body desires, right? So Paul comes right out and says that if you're gonna be dead to sin and alive to God and you're gonna see that as valid, you cannot listen to that voice. It's called dying to self, self-control, right? And that's where verse 13, really elaborates on it a little bit further. I love the imagery that he gives us in verse 13. He says, essentially what you need to do is that rather than listening to those evil desires within your mortal flesh, you need to not offer yourself to be an instrument of wickedness, but offer yourself, all of yourself, to be an instrument of righteousness. And that's pretty remarkable, I love that, because the word instrument there could be translated as weapon. And I love that imagery, right? It's the idea that every life is actually a weapon that can be used in battle. The question is, is which side are you going to fight for, right? It's not a question of will you be influential? It's what kind of influence will you have, right? You're either going to let your life be used for wickedness or righteousness, and so what are you choosing to offer yourself to? And the word offer is so meaningful and so powerful. It means to decide to surrender. (laughs) I love that. It's that that notion of resolve, right, that idea of self-control, that I'm actually going to surrender to these things, right, that I'm gonna surrender to, to something else, not to my fleshly desire, but to something that is greater, something that is higher. I'm gonna actually surrender to him and his kingdom and his righteousness, right? And that's exactly what we're saying when we walk through the sacrament and the ordinance of baptism, right? What we're talking about here is the symbolism that says, I'm coming to make a promise and a commitment for everyone to see right? that that this day and every day since, uh, that moment where I decide to be baptized, what I want the world to know is I'm no longer living for myself, that if I really am going to identify who reigns in my life, Jesus is Lord of my life. And so I'm offering everything that I am, I love that Paul says, every single part of you to him, I'm offering offering everything I can. I'm surrendering everything that I have to Jesus so that my life declares that he is Lord. This is Romans 12 all over again. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because the will that you are seeking is not your own, but it's God's will. And we assure you, it is good, pleasing, and perfect. And so we gather together, church, when we see this statement and we dig into this truth, what we need to constantly remind one another is that we don't need to listen to the voice of despair, because the voice of our king points us to hope. We don't need to listen to the voices that lead us towards lust, because our the voice of our king points to purity. And we don't need to listen to the voices that, that take us down a path of hatred or division or pride because the voice of our king points us to love, to peace, to unity, to humility. The voice of our king is a voice of incredible love and amazing grace. Which voice is the Lord of your life. What are you offering yourself to? And how is that shaping your thoughts and your behavior? Uh, The last thought here that we find that ties all this together in verse 14, and I'll close with this, is that what we recognize and every single one of us can adhere to and testify to is that this is an ongoing daily battle. As long as we're in this mortal body, we're going to we're gonna struggle with this impulse to resist its fleshly desires and to see Jesus as Lord. There's no doubt. And it's a struggle. But part of what we see is this promise that sin won't be your master. Right, and notice that it's written in the future tense because it's pointing to the forever promise that there will be a day where it is forever undone. But that promise allows us to have victory even in this life while we await his resurrection. But in verse 14, you and I are reminded How this victory over sin, how this victory over these fleshly impulses is achieved, it is not by our own merit. You don't find victory in your own skill set, and your own abilities. The victory comes in Jesus Christ because we don't live under law. We live under grace. The only way this is possible is because we have a God who loves us so deeply and looked in on these mortal bodies in this broken state and said, I wanna set you free. And it's only through that grace that we find victory. And that's what we're declaring when we say, Jesus is Lord. We're reminding one another that we're gonna do everything we can to stand in his death and all that it achieves for us. We're gonna do everything that we can to stand in his love and in his power because we know that the only way any of this is possible is through Christ and through Christ alone in the amazing grace that he extends to us. So let's celebrate that grace this morning, church, and declare to one another and to the world around us who the Lord of our life truly is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you, and we are so grateful. God, we are so grateful for the sacrifice that you have offered it secures us such a victory, that gives us such freedom. And we ask, God, that you would allow us to stand upon that grace um, in such a powerful way and in a way that allows us to be reminded again of who you are and the love that you have for us. We thank you, God, for the many ways that you call us into that grace. And we, Father, we offer ourselves um, and declare that you are truly Lord in every meaning of the word that it could possibly convey. Help us to offer every part of ourselves to you, Father, that you would be exalted in our lives and that we could glorify you. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be reminded of such grace and we commit it to you today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.